Mondays, Tuesday ever. Anyways, <laughs> welcome to What the Actual Left. What a what a warm welcome, right? <laughs> Sorry about that. For all of you who have never tuned into an episode, you're probably like, okay, <laughs> who is this crazy lady? Well, you are right about one thing. I am in fact <laughs> crazy. And that's why we're here. This is What the Actual Left, and I am heart <laughs> words. Let me try that again. This is What the Actual Left. And my name's Harmony. So ever since I was a little girl, I've been kind of obsessed with all things like creepy and and dark, which usually include murder. <clears throat> Sorry about that. Murder, which got me on a path of digging into a lot of the darker tales of our world. Tales of murder and uh, disappearances, missing people, conspiracies, hauntings, urban legends, all things that are just kind of eerie. The tales that when people start to talk about, some people go, okay, this is not for me. Or the people that go, ooh, okay, I kind of I like this stuff. What, what you got? I'm one of those people. The, okay, what you got for me people. And if you're here, then I'm guessing you are too. And boy, do I have a tale for you today. So many, many, many years ago, I lived in Connecticut. And that is where we are going to go today. Pure, simple fun. It's a feeling like no other, and it's closer than you think in nearby Connecticut. Welcome to Connecticut. No, but for real, if you've never been to Connecticut, it really is a beautiful state. Many, many years ago, I lived there for a few months and I enjoyed it. It's beautiful. It's got seasons, which is a lot more than I can say about Florida. Here, it's hot, hotter, ooh, a little bit cold, and hottest. Yeah, it's, uh, it's brutal here. However, Connecticut is truly beautiful. So if you couldn't figure it out, Connecticut is where this case is coming from. But not just any place in Connecticut. Oh no. The place we're going today is a place that many people dream of. Young children and teens aspire and work hard to get into this place. After all, in order to get accepted into the Ivy League, you gotta bust your ass a little bit. Or maybe a lot. I don't know. I obviously didn't make it. But today, we are all accepted into the Ivy League because we are taking a trip to New Haven, Connecticut to none other than Yale University. Oh my God, <laughs> I can't wait to call my dad and tell him I got accepted. <clears throat> Sorry, <laughs> roll the clip. Hi, I'm Bob Alpern. I'm the Dean of Yale School of Medicine and I would like to welcome you as one of our newest members of the Yale Physician Associates Program. So, 
Welcome to Yale University. This is one of the most pristine schools in all of the United States. Yale University is a private Ivy League research university in New Haven, Connecticut. It was founded in 1701, and it is the third oldest institution of higher education in the United States. So why are we here? That is because the walls of this pristine school hold a very dark secret. I have a case for you today that doesn't get a lot of coverage, and <laughs> I can see why. Yale probably doesn't want this case to get out more than it has. Well, <laughs> I'm gonna share it. The murder of Annie Lay occurred on September 8th in 2009, while she was on the campus of Yale University in New Haven, Connecticut. Annie was a 24-year-old student at the Yale School of Medicine's Department of Pharmacology, and she was last seen in a research building in the New Haven campus on September 8th. Just a few days later, on the day that Annie was supposed to be getting married, her body was found inside of the building. A few days after Annie's body was discovered, an arrest was made in the case. And this person does still currently sit in prison today, receiving just 44 years for this heinous crime. I don't want to spoil the details, but I will say that I think he should have gotten more. I'd love to know what you think. But in order for you to form an opinion, I need to tell you the brutal murder of Annie Lay. This is the last place that Annie was seen walking into a lab Tuesday morning at 10 o'clock. She was supposed to get married this weekend, in fact. But now police are trying to figure out if this is a case of cold feet or if there's a crime involved. And still some say the area around jail could be a very dangerous area. In fact, Annie had written about it herself in the University Magazine earlier this year. She wrote New Haven is an area plagued with thefts and frightening confrontations, but adding with a little street smarts, you can avoid becoming a statistic. That search for Annie will continue all around the New Haven area today. Now that you guys know where our case takes place, let me tell you who our victim is. Annie Lay was born in San Jose, California. She was born to a Vietnamese American family. However, there isn't a lot about her parents because Annie didn't grow up living with them. She spent most of her childhood living with her aunt and her uncle. This didn't seem to affect Annie very much, however. In fact, it seemed to do well for her. She graduated as valedictorian of her class at Union Mine High School. This is located in El Dorado, California. She was also voted most likely to be the next Einstein. And her class was pretty spot on. Her major was developmental biology, with a minor in medical anthropology. Ya girl was pretty smart. Her research had applications in the treatment of diabetes and certain forms of cancer. So, <laughs> yeah, she was on the road to being an Einstein. She was also going to be married to the love of her life on September 13th in 2009. The object of her affection was Jonathan Wadowski. He was a graduate student in applied physics and mathematics at Columbia University. So he also had a pretty good head on his shoulders. The two really seemed to be perfect for one another. They both had promising, bright futures. But sadly, the two would never marry, and Annie would never see just how promising her future really was. Moments ago, I spoke to one of Annie Lay's close friends and former roommates, Vanessa Flores. 
I had a very tough time just uh, reading the headline. I um, read it over the internet. I um, came from Newark and um, I was just trying to get myself settled and um, it, when I looked into the internet and, and just see what had happened and um, to read it and, and then I guess listen to the statement by Yale's uh, president. I You talk about her yeah. fiance, John. He is not a suspect. Tell us about him. Mm -hmm. I think he was perfect for her. Like, um, John was so, uh, or is, I mean, he's, um, he was just so wonderful to her. John was so supportive of her, of, of her dreams, of um, following her research goals to, um, you know, they, they had to separate. They were together at Rochester and they, she went to Yale, he went to Columbia and he, supported her through this and they would talk on the cell phone for hours and they would just be so connected. This brings us to September 8th. Campus security footage captured Annie entering the building where her lab was located on September 8th at around 10 a.m. However, it never caught her leaving. And when she didn't return home that night, her roommate reported her missing. It was very unlike her to not arrive and be on time. Annie was extremely punctual. Police checked out the lab and this is when they found Annie's computer and cell phone. However, they didn't find Annie. At first, it was suspected that maybe she had just gotten cold feet. Maybe went into voluntary hiding due to nerves because of her upcoming wedding. This wouldn't be unheard of. Many people get jitters just days before their wedding, and some people freak out and run away. This is what the police believe was happening with Annie. However, after the discovery of bloodstained clothing in the lab ceiling on September 12th, Annie's case would go from possible voluntary missing person to a homicide investigation. The very next day after the bloodstained clothing was found was Annie's wedding day. September 13th. This is when police started to notice a smell. A smell that was similar to that of a decomposing body. This smell was coming from the lab in which Annie did her research. The very last lab that Annie was seen walking into. At 5 o'clock that afternoon, when Annie was supposed to be walking down the aisle to her fiancé in order to say her I do's, police and cadaver dogs were currently discovering her body. Her body had been hidden in the wall of the lab room, and in order for her to fit in this area, her bones were broken in several places. Here is a quote. She was like mush, so smashed you couldn't even recognize her. This is what an unidentified source told the New York Post. Annie had to be crammed so tightly into this area that it basically left her like soup. The coroner later found out that Annie had died from traumatic asphyxiation by neck compression. She also had a broken jaw and broken collarbone, injuries that she had sustained while she was alive. So yes, Annie had several, several bones that were broken, but that was due to her being crammed into the wall after she was deceased. She sustained the jaw break and her clavicle bone breaking while she was alive and the person who took her life did so by crushing her throat. Annie had also been partially undressed. This led police to investigate to see if there was a sexual assault. 
and in fact, there was. They located semen on Annie's body and her underwear, confirming that there had been an attempted sexual assault. I really hate how many crimes are sexually motivated. What the fuck is wrong with people? Listen, I understand getting off is fantastic. And yeah, who doesn't want to get off with somebody that you find attractive? But I mean, killing to do so? <laughs> That's not my cup of tea. But <laughs> apparently, there are some monsters who like that shit. Again, people suck. Would you guys like to know what piece of shit committed this crime? Don't worry, I got you. Door neighbor, 17-year-old Joseph Goodwin. One time we were out in the hallway and my dad was like, he had, we had our stuff in the hallway or whatever. And he walked by, he's like, what is this shit doing in my way? He says, I want it out by tomorrow. My dad said, hold up, bro, you got a problem? You come to me, don't talk to my son like that. And the guy's just crazy. He's like, I don't know what's wrong with him. And I don't know if he killed the girl or whatever this has to do with, but I just know that he has the mind like that, like he's crazy. Goodwin also describes Clark as evasive. I know he was weird. He would never look you in your eyes. He would say hi. He would walk by, raise his hand. That's it. This three-story house in New Haven is where Clark lived until recently with his girlfriend and their cats and dogs. I thought he was a nice guy. I mean, besides the one time that he's like, can you guys get the trash out of the, out of the hallway? Besides that, I thought he was nice. On the day that Annie's body was found, fellow student Raymond Clark III reported seeing her leave the Yale Animal Research Center. He said when he saw her leaving, she had two bags of mouse food and was holding a notebook. Police immediately zeroed in on Ray. He was a 26-year-old fellow student of Annie's, and he was the only one that was in the lab at the time that Annie disappeared. In a 13-page arrest affidavit for Raymond, it would reveal that it showed the movements of both Annie and Raymond's security cards, and they were going in stride with each other. And I don't mean that as in they were hanging out together. Annie would go into one room, and he would follow. Creepy! There were also scratches found on Ray's body, almost like somebody had been defending themselves and scratched him. Hmm, a little bit suspicious, don't you think? Oh, another thing. Ray also attempted to clean up the crime scene, and he tried erasing his DNA. Although the document did not offer any motive for the crime, sources that were familiar with the investigation told the Hartford Current that the strangulation occurred during a work dispute between Ray and Annie. So it seemed as though they were fighting. Now, this isn't unusual for Ray. In fact, one of his high school exes states that he had a very serious anger issue. I'm gonna let her share her story, just so you guys can get an idea of how shitty Raymond really is. Go back with me when you okay. were 16. Tell me about him, because everything I read says he was an athlete. Good student? Yeah, he was very popular. He was, you know, a very nice guy. Everybody loved him. He was a good student. He was a great baseball player. And I mean, at first he was, you know, he's perfect. He was charming. He was sweet. He took me out. It was great. I mean, and we had a mom loved him. Yeah, he was very nice. And then what happened that first caused you alarm? Um, about three months into everything, he started to get um, a little controlling in the fact where it was 
what I could and couldn't wear and where I couldn't go and how I should speak and like stuff like that. And then just from there, just it escalated. Was it a way that frightened you? A way that unnerved well, it you? Well, it was just unusual for me. I'd never had somebody tell me what I could and couldn't do before. I mean, that's just the way that it that it started with him. You mean at the level of everyday things? Yeah, everything exactly. Everything you wore, everything you did? Yeah. You know, it's don't go here and don't be friends with these boys and these girls, you're okay. And, you know, you're talking too much or you're not talking loud enough, stuff like that. And did you say why? What, what, what is this? I, you know, it would just cause such a big fight that it wasn't even worth it. I mean, I was 16 years old. I, I didn't. What about the temper? Um, it escalated a lot after that. He would get very angry, you know, often. What is very angry? Frighten you? Yeah, he would frighten me. Um, he did get physical. It, it escalated a lot after, I mean, with the controlling issue, it escalated from there. Um, when you say get physical. Yeah. I'm sorry, I don't want to talk about that. There are certain things the police exactly I've um, requested you not to talk about. Yeah, but it was physical and it was scary. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. There were times that he did frighten me. I mean, he. What? <laughs> I mean, you know, he get this little look in his eye, and sometimes it was better just to do what he said, just to avoid the Would fight. Would this be a sudden thing where he'd be one person one minute and then just dramatically change, or was this change? fairly constant once it, once it happened it, it was happening more often as the relationship progressed like if things didn't go his way then he'd make them go his way you talk about the end what happened at the end i just i wanted out i wanted i realized that i didn't want to be in this type of relationship anymore that i wanted it to be over and when you told him this what he didn't want it to be over and an incident occurred and I took the steps that I thought would be the best way to handle it, and I went through the school, and I went through the police, and it... Wait a minute, wait a minute. When you say he didn't want he, yeah, he it didn't to want be to break what, up. Did, what did he do? I can't comment on that. But it was frightening enough that you thought at Absolutely. some point you might need police help. Absolutely. To I can't speak for you, but in my opinion, <laughs> Ray sounds like a peach. A rotten peach. Now, according to that 13-page arrest affidavit for him, from the hours of 10.45 in the morning until 3.45 in the afternoon on September 8th, Ray went in and out of the lab room where Annie had been working and another room down the hall, a total of 55 times. That is in five hours. That means that an average of 11 times an hour, this man was walking in and out of that lab room. That is absolutely suspicious. In a small part of the affidavit, there was a redacted area, which was actually the discovery of Annie's body. When Ray left the building that day, police could see he was wearing different clothing than he had been wearing when he arrived to the facility. Remember, there were security cameras, the same ones that saw Annie entering the building saw him entering and leaving. Yale is heavily, heavily guarded and has great security. I mean, it better for the price that it costs to go there. Obviously, even with a lot of security and measures for safety, things still happen. Just because you have a lot of security doesn't always mean you're safe. It just means the criminals have to work a little harder. 
Now, while police were on the search for Annie, a fellow student by the name of Rachel Roth would tell the Yale University police officer Sabrina Wood about a box of wipes that she had found with blood on it. The wipes were located on a steel pushcart in the room that Annie had last logged in with her security card. Once in the room, Sabrina Wood would notice more than just this blood-covered wipe box. According to the affidavit, Sabrina saw Clark go over to the cart and move the box so that the blood spatter was facing the other way and out of visible sight. Once the university police officer Sabrina saw this, she immediately approached Raymond and began some small talk with him. As investigators continued to search for Annie, Raymond continued cleaning and scrubbing the drain in the room with steel wool and other cleaning products all in hopes that he could hide what he had done. Another Yale University sergeant, Jay Jones, also saw Raymond scrubbing the floor under the sink, near the drain. Jay thought it was strange as the floor seemed to be clean. Jay also noticed that he saw Ray touch the pushcart, the same one that had those blood splattered wipes. By September 10th, the FBI had collected a list of evidence that included the box of wipes, and an extra-large lab coat with red stains that was found in a recycling box. Oh yeah, I forgot to mention, the FBI got involved in this case, by the way. Gail doesn't play around. Surveillance footage also would show Ray wearing a similar lab coat early in the day, very similar to the one that was found. Investigators then would head to Annie's apartment to gather her personal belongings. This included a toothbrush in order to get her DNA for testing. The results from the testing of Annie's DNA prove that the blood on the box of wipes was in fact hers, along with the blood on the lab coat. On September 10th, Ray came forward with information about Annie. He told investigators that he saw Annie leaving the building 15 minutes before he left the building, and just 15 minutes before the fire alarm went off. The alarm was set off by an autoclave used to sterilize lab equipment. This interview would be Ray's downfall. I mean, one, one of the downfalls. He actually kind of just set himself up for failure, but uh, this interview would actually do him in. Investigators decided they needed to focus on him due to this interview. He was altogether pretty suspicious. Investigators applied for a search and seizure warrant to get mouth swabs, fingerprints, body hair, and fingernail clippings from Raymond. They conducted a polygraph test as well. And wouldn't you know, he failed. And I don't mean like failed a little bit. I mean, he failed miserably. But, but, but as we know, these are not actually held up in court. It just doesn't look good. On September 12th, police discovered evidence above a hallway drop ceiling outside of the lab. A rubber glove with bloodstains was found along with a sock. They also collected a pair of work boots covered in blood that had the label Ray C on them. They also found blue hospital scrubs that looked oddly like the ones that Ray had been wearing in the surveillance tapes. Hmm, things aren't looking so good for Mr. Raymond. At this point though, investigators had found a sizable amount of evidence, but they still hadn't found Annie's body. As we know, they would, they would, but not at this point. Although it was looking bad for Raymond, often without a body, it's really hard to pin a crime. However, this is when investigators began to notice that very, very familiar smell 
of decomp <laughs> decomposition. Sorry, words are tough. This is when they found it was coming from that utility panel located in the wall. They brought in cadaver dogs and very quickly found a female body. Her underwear had been pulled down to her ankles and she also had a broken jaw and collarbone. Blood was all over and behind the wall. Whoever had shoved her in there had also used insulation to conceal her body. They also found a bloodstained lab coat there as well. Oh, they also found a surgical glove, which happened to be on Annie's hand. Her other hand, however, was missing its glove. Oh, they also found a blood-soaked sock, which seemed to be the partner of the one they had found earlier. They also found a green ink pen. On September 15th, police searched Raymond's apartment in Middleton and obtained DNA. These DNA samples would soon be found to be a match, including a match of a sample of semen left at the crime scene. A stain on the sock also contained Annie's DNA and Ray's DNA combined, meaning there was no mistaking that he had been there when she died. Police had been able to build a substantial case. Ray was arrested on September 17th at a Super 8 motel in Cromwell, Connecticut. Raymond would be charged with murder and remanded to the McDougal... Okay, hold on. I can't be saying that right. The McDougal Walker... No, that's still not right. The McDougal Walker Correctional Facility. Sorry, I saw McDougal and wanted to keep saying McDougal. Listen, I call my dog Bastion McDougal all the time. <clears throat> Sorry about that. Sorry about that. My mistake. Anyways, now that we know I am so bad with words, let's continue. Raymond would stay at this McDougal facility <laughs> until his trial. Clark III faces 44 years in prison for the 2009 murder of Annie Lay. News 8's Annie Warwick standing by live outside of New Haven Superior Court this noon with the latest. Danny. Good afternoon, Keith. Raymond Clark arrived here at New Haven Superior Court just before 9.30 this morning. He, the sentencing is going on as we speak, and we are expecting to hear from Raymond Clark the first time he's made any public comments about all of this. Again, the 26-year-old from Middletown was escorted to New Haven Superior Court earlier this morning. Clark made a plea deal in the case and is expected to receive 45 years behind bars for the killing of Annie Lay. Her family also arrived at the courthouse this morning. About 10 members of her family have traveled from Placerville, California. Her fiancé will also be here. They all want to be in the courtroom today to see justice done. This is his victim impact, or not his victim impact statement. This is his statement. And the first sentence here says, I take full responsibility for my actions. In January of 2010, Raymond initially pled not guilty. Now, he would later change his plea in exchange for a shorter prison term. On March 17th in 2011, with a room full of reporters along with Annie's fiance and family, Raymond sat there looking quiet and abandoned. He quietly pled guilty to the murder of Annie Lay. He was also found guilty of attempted sexual assault. Raymond had made an agreement with the court to serve just 44 years, meaning he will absolutely be released one day. And that day falls in 2053, while Annie Lay, a victim of this heinous man, will never 
see life again. <laughs> you guys know my stance. <laughs> if you kill somebody, you don't deserve to experience life. I'm sorry. <clears throat> Anyways, during the sentencing, about 20 members of Annie's family sent there with handkerchiefs as they cried listening. Annie's mother, Vivian Van Lay, and her father, Hong Lay, made emotional statements before the judge's sentence was imposed. According to the New Haven Register, the most powerful moment came from Raymond Clark III. This happened when he addressed the courtroom tearfully. Obviously, there's no amount of jail time or punishment that will ever bring Annie back. After almost an hour of victim impact statements, the man who killed her rose and spoke, reading from a prepared statement. He said in part, I alone am responsible for the death of Annie Lay. I took a life and continued to lie about it while Annie's friends, family, and fiance sat and waited. I'm sorry for taking Annie Lay's life. I take full responsibility for my actions, Ray said, as he read a statement in a muted and unsteady voice. I alone am responsible for the death of Annie Lay and causing tremendous pain to all who loved and cared about Annie. I have always tried to do the right thing and stay out of trouble, he added. But I failed and I took a life and continued to lie about it while Annie's friends, family, and fiance sat and waited. I truly never wanted to harm anyone or cause emotional pain to anyone. All I wanted was to be a good son, a good brother, and a good fiance. But again, I failed. He continued with this. I blame only myself and there are no excuses for what I have done. Annie was and will always be a wonderful person, by far a better person than I will ever be in my life. He did continue on. At this point, it seemed as though he was hoping to get some sort of sympathy. You know, woe is him for killing a woman, all because he couldn't control his anger and just wanted to diddle her. So obviously, people were not sympathetic. <clears throat> sorry. He ended it with this. I'm sorry I lied. I'm sorry I ruined lives and I'm sorry for taking Annie's life. The Superior Court Judge Roland Fasano said, the suffering, the anguish of the families is heartbreaking. He did say that the plea agreement is appropriate as it was a substantial sentence and prevents Annie's family from going through an emotional and very painful trial. Raymond does remain incarcerated at Cheshire Correctional Institution in New Haven County, Connecticut. I personally do not think that 44 years is enough. In fact, I think he should never leave jail again. And that is a nice sentence in my eyes. Funeral is being planned for Annie Lay, the Yale University grad student who was strangled earlier this month. CBS News correspondent Bianca Cerlozano is in New Haven, Connecticut with the very latest. Bianca, good morning. Hi, good morning, Russ. As Annie Lay's family moves one step closer to saying their final goodbyes, questions still surround the motive in her murder. Annie Lay's body made the long trip home to Placerville, California this weekend, one week after the shocking discovery in a basement wall at the Yale lab where she worked. The arrangements uh, will be a private funeral mass for Annie, a really a special time of pulling together for the family. Today's New York Post reports Lay's body was so mangled with broken bones it wasn't recognizable and that Raymond Clark may have accidentally tripped a fire alarm with his or Lay's security swipe card. Investigators say they have more than enough physical evidence to convict Clark and may not even need to establish a motive. You know, the only person that really truly knows the motive in this crime is the suspect. What made him do what he did? And we may not know till trial or we may never know. 
Clark's attorney, Joseph Lopez, plans to file a complaint over what he claims are excessive leaks from police to the media. As Annie Lay's family prepares for their final goodbyes, Pastor Dennis Smith asked for prayers for two families in need. Who knows what happened exactly? If he is the individual that did it, uh, he certainly needs our prayers, um, and his family needs our prayers. There are two memorial services now planned for Annie Lay, the private one on Saturday in California and after the Jewish holidays at a temple in Huntington, New York, where her fiancé worships. Russ? Bianca Solozano in New Haven, Connecticut. Thank you very much. Many people turned out to say goodbye to Annie. Annie's family and friends gathered on September 26, 2009 in California's Sierra Nevada foothills. This was just near where Annie had grown up. Jonathan Wadowski held a memorial service earlier in the week and arrived carrying red roses for Annie. He was clearly heartbroken by the loss of his fiance. Jonathan sat with his head bowed while Annie's family and friends filled the church to say goodbye. Many remembered her as a young girl who was beaming with life, a young girl who was filled with the mission to find cures for diseases. Jonathan acted as head usher for the California service attended by more than 600 people. Annie made an impact. There was no denying that. Annie's mother, Vivian, tearfully talked about the lullabies that she would sing to her daughter when she was small. Vivian then read a poem that she had written in Vietnamese. Farewell, my child, the most wonderful gift that God sent to me. A knife is now searing through my soul. Those were just two lines from what Vivian read as she said goodbye to her daughter. It is absolutely heartbreaking that a family and a fiancé had to say goodbye to this young girl. So many people to this day mourn the loss of Annie Lay. And all this because of the actions of one young man. One man who showed in his past he already had a violent nature. I'm always left with questions and wondering when it comes to our system how this stuff happens. It was clear that the police had been involved with Ray in his past. He had violent anger issues, which sadly were left unchecked and untreated. And due to this, Annie Lay is now dead. This whole thing must just be so, so sad. And I really missing her. I bet. And I missing her boy because she's a very strong woman. I know. Before we go, I need to tell you guys a little bit more about this case. What you just heard is a snippet from Annie Lay's mother. You see, on September 7th, 2011, nearly two years to the day that Annie was murdered, the family of the Yale graduate decided to file a wrongful death lawsuit against the university. The suit claims that Yale failed to adequately protect women for years, accusing the college of insufficiently addressing incidents of sexual harassment and sexual assaults that occurred on the campus. Now, let me tell you a little bit something here. This would not be the first time that Yale had to defend itself against claims that the university fails to protect women on its campus. In fact, the U.S. Department of Education's Office for Civil Rights actually invested the complaints by Yale students that the university failed to properly respond to sexual harassment concerns often. In turn, after her murder, Yale updated its workplace violence prevention policy, stating that the university had a zero tolerance for violent and threatening behavior. 
The university also added violence prevention training for curriculum managers and background checks for temporary workers hired through the agencies, as well as vendors with electronic access to Yale buildings. Is that enough? Probably not. And sadly for Annie Lay, it's too little, too late. Joining us live tonight is one of Annie Lay's friends, Tiffany Felice, joining us live from Davis. The two of them went to Union Mine High School. First of all, we are so sorry for your loss, and thank you for taking some time to talk to us about your friend. Thank you. So tell us how you are remembering your friend. I am remembering Annie Lay as um, just one of the most phenomenal people I have ever met. She is by far the most intelligent person I have ever met. Um, we all knew she was going to do wonderful things. She was the one that was going to change the world. And aside from all that, she was hilarious. She was spunky. She was a great friend and just all around a wonderful, wonderful girl. Yeah, to a man and woman, everyone says that she was just such a, a great person to be around. And then she just was really going places, having uh, become a graduate student at Yale. Can you tell us a little bit, Tiffany, about uh, how you heard about what had happened? Um, I heard through uh, Facebook. Um, we. Everybody sort of came together as soon as they heard, um, and we have all been in constant contact. So I heard through other high school friends, and and we've all been keeping up with all the stories and sharing stories. And yeah, what did like they that. say? What did they yeah. say? Yeah, yeah. Well, um, I don't really want to speak for anybody else, but um, we're just, you know, we're remembering like our 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 happy times with Annie. So, mm -hmm. Tiffany, I know we. We really can't ask you anything about the investigation because you haven't been as close with her in recent years and, mm -hmm. and, and those are questions you can't answer. But, but Annie did lose her life at such a young age, 24 years old. What do you think her legacy might be? Oh, just um, when someone has like so much potential, uh, you know, hard work and ambition can really go a long way and she has shown that her entire life and certainly in high school when when I knew her with all of the AP classes that she took <laughs> and um, and obviously grad student at Yale she was such a hard worker and and that will definitely live on well Tiffany Felice obviously she made an impression on you and you are still a good friend to her and uh, this roughest roughest of times for you and all of your other friends so thanks for taking the time to talk to us tonight about you know, your you. friend Annie okay so guys that was the disturbing case of Annie Lay, a young graduate student at Yale University who had her life brutally ripped from her. I want to say thank you guys for coming here every week and enjoying the content that I create for you. And for those of you that are first timers, I hope you become regular listeners. It is because of so many of you that I have been able to follow my dreams and continue with this career. Now, for those of you who do listen to my podcast often, you may remember me talking about a YouTube channel collaboration I had coming up. Well, the time has arrived. This week or next week, I will begin filming what is known as Hexmix. This will be a YouTube channel in collab with Kill Devil Films. I cannot wait to begin this journey. And I hope that when I tell you exactly when it's beginning and tell you where to find it, you will support me and check it out. I love being a content creator and creating things that many people around the world love. So thank you so much for being one of them. 
I will tell you more about what exactly Hex Mix is on the next episode of What the Actual F. I do want to say thank you to Thomas Crane and Kill Devil Films for this opportunity. I can not wait. Alright, well, this was this week's episode. A tale of a disturbing murder, all in the hands of a very disturbing man. And would you be shocked to learn that this is not a unusual occurrence? No, no. I personally know that schools in America are pretty fucking dangerous. But I mean, look at the people. Americans are a dangerous bunch of people. But I was very, very shocked to learn that Ivy League schools and many pristine universities have a lot of murders. Who knows? Maybe I'll share more with you in the future. <laughs> I, I will. I, I absolutely will. Anyways, I hope you guys have a fantastic rest of the week. And I do hope that your Tuesday is a lot less blah than mine. Don't forget, you can send me a message anytime via email. You can write me at whattheactualeffharmony at gmail.com. I do check these a lot more than most of my social media, which you can also follow me on as well or reach out to me. You can find me on Instagram and TikTok at ohheyitsharmony. You can also message me on there as stated many of you do so, I just cannot promise that I will see it or get back to you. I get a lot of messages every day and I do my best. So if you want to reach me about this podcast or any cases or anything you want to tell me about and have me look into, please send me an email. Alright guys, I will talk to you on the next episode of What the Actual F. I love you, stay safe, and until next week, hi, bye!